0: Coming up, exactly why do so many 4x4 dual cab utes end up bent like bananas out there in the boonies on the road to Dingo Piss Creek? I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap (laughs) for buyers here in Australia. Website for that, obviously. Or you can just click the card that's sometimes, more or less, on days ending in Y, up there now, dude. Okay, so there is this unique weakness in 4x4 Utes that sees them banana-ramified on the road to Dingo Piss Creek. You don't see it so much with 4x4 wagons, and I'd suggest that this all has to do with dickhead factor because really hard to engineer out the dickhead. <laughs> you'd agree, especially out there. And dude, you've just got to be conservative. But anyway, I promised to do this about a 100 years ago, if you're a regular long-term viewer of the channel. And I'm only a century late, but since then we've had a lockdown and a pandemic and we had all those fires, remember them. Anywho, I thought I'd get around to it now in response to the following I Been looking at your reports and you are very keen on Triton Utes, especially the reliability, warranty and price. However, there is a common view in the four-wheel drive community that Tritons suffer a lot more from bench chassis than other brands. Lots of photos of Triton in a U-shape. What is your view on this problem in Tritons compared to other brands? That's from Jeff Saul. Thank you very much, Jeff. Now, look, I want to put my enthusiasm for the Triton 4x4 dual cab in perspective okay I've spent a lot of time out there on the road to Dingo Piss Creek and mainly in a professional capacity right putting on events as a corporate consultant in the boonies and that's why I don't wear the hat or the blue singlet or the fongs, mate okay because it'd be a little bit like going back to work in that regard and I've got this thing about going forward okay I bought a ute because, hey, Australia, I wanted a ute and I didn't want to pay, you know, 75 grand for it. So Triton's good value and I really do like all-wheel drive mode where you can use the Super Select 2 transfer case to engage four-wheel drive on a high-traction surface without forcing the transfer case to go poopy in its trousers because of the wind-up phenomenon, okay? So... I didn't do it because Triton is objectively superior to Hilux or uh, Ranger or use of this nature. I did it because it was right for me, like the price was right and I liked the tech and in the manner that I'm gonna use it, which would be only occasionally driving down a dirt road and maybe doing a bit of four-wheel driving at some stage, But Mainly, it's just for getting stuff from Fat Cave 1.0 to Fat Cave 2.0 and ferrying other stuff back from Fat Cave 2.0 to here. Okay, so I'm not using it like a dingo Piss Creekian, like a bona fide 4x4 adventurer. Okay, so there's that. But I do think that this problem, this alleged problem with Triton, is massively overblown and it's due to sort of cognitive dissonance around the campfire mainly. And that's because a lot of owners of other utes can say to themselves, oh, well, I didn't buy a Triton, so this is not an issue for me. Whereas if you interrogate the facts here, then you can go to Google and go to Google Images and do a search for 4x4 ute bent chassis, and you will see all manner of utes with bent chassis okay and this is because there is a specific weakness in utes to this problem I'm not going to call it a design deficiency, I'm going to call it a characteristic of these utes, okay? And it's also dickhead factor, okay? So I'm talking directly to you if you are one of these dicks who seems to think that all of these limits are something you can aspire to. Like, let's say the payload, like the payload of a Triton GSR, for example, is... 999 kilos, if memory serves. But if you think it's a good idea to load that vehicle up to 999 kilos and then go and flog it endlessly across the harshest roads in the outback, then you're a moron, because that's just simply not conservative enough to ensure that you're going to go out there and get back, okay? So my thing about limits is let's remain conservatively below them, especially if the operating characteristics in other areas are being ramped up in terms of the severity. And out there, it friggin' is, because there's washaways, which are the biggest risk for this problem, by the way. And there's elevated temperatures, which place the powertrain under continuous duress. And it's just generally harsh operating conditions. And then if you go and ramp up the vehicle to its limit in... GVM or GCM, you tow the maximum trailer you can tow. If you're not conservatively within the limitation envelope, then you are opening the door and inviting friggin' disaster to come in and give you a lap dance. And disaster is the girl who can't say no when it comes to this, okay? So, with that in mind, and I do thank Jeff Saul for his uh, question there because it is highly relevant. There are so many dual-cab utes out there overloaded in the harshest conceivable operating conditions. And the door is open and the lap dance is just waiting for the right, or is that wrong, confluence of events. Let me explain. Now, before we get into the beer garden physics, the ghetto engineering of banana ramification for 4x4 utes, I'd just like to take a quick moment to thank the non-pointer sponsor, of this fine segment, the mighty Leyland King Dick Chrome Vanadium 9-16ths, 11-16ths, British Standard Spanner, the double open ender from hell, most reliable product Leyland ever made. I feel privileged just to have one in my hand right now. Anyway, let's think about your ute like this, okay? Let's just say that it's a structural element rocketing down the road at 100 k's an hour which is like 25 27 meters a second or something right it's really just a beam like an i-beam and i know the chassis is not an i-beam it's two c-shaped channels welded together kind of like that but let's just think about it like a structural beam rocketing down the road with all of this functionality built in like it's got glass so you can see outside and seats so that your ass does not get tired on the way to the creek and Things of that nature. You're pumping the fat beats out and you're carrying your stuff and you've got accommodation for you and, you know, three mingmoles or something. Sounds like a living hell, doesn't it? Anyway, the the bottom line here is that you've got this, this load on the chassis all the time, all right? And I've taken some uh, trouble to try and make the dimensionality of the wheelbase and the overhang and the tray kind of to scale, more or less, okay? So you've got two and a bit metres worth of wheelbase in most utes, generally, and then you've got about one and a half metres from the rear axle to the back of the tray, and maybe 1.9, something like that from the rear of the cab. And the other thing which people never conceptualise is that in a truck, like a proper truck, a flatbed or something, the load space is between the wheels. The majority of the load is carried between the wheels, all right? Not so much with your 4x4 dual cab because the front of the rear wheel is basically hard up against the rear of the cabin. So accommodation in this area, and that is some load, and obviously the cabin does weigh something, and that is some load, but when you think about load in the context of utes, you're talking about the stuff you add generally. That's the campfire conversation, the load, right? So. The problem with the load in one of these things is that it's generally out behind the rear axle, especially if you've got a roll-top tonneau in one of those high-grade utes, because, yeah, dude, like, you can put some stuff here where it's probably better resolved, but the cartridge for the roll-top is above it, and it's a pain in the ass, generally, to put the heaviest stuff in at the end of when you're wrapping up every campsite and you're on the move again. It's a pain in the ass to get the really heavy stuff and pack it up the front, right? even though that's where it should go. So invariably, a lot of this heavy stuff, jerry cans and generators and things of this nature, tend to go in the back, right up the back. And then, of course, you can add a camper, which is generally longer than the tray that the ute might come with. And then, because the camper's got a nice flat surface on the back, hey, let's put two dirty, big, 35-inch tyres right on the back. Like, dude... And then let's tow a trailer, because maybe we're at work, or maybe we've got a camper trailer, or Christ knows, some trailer, maybe a boat, who knows. But let's say it's a tonne and a half, two tonnes, two and a half, whatever. That's another 150 to 250 kilos, right here, right out the back, on the tow ball, okay? And this is kind of a significant load proposition. And the other thing to remember, of course, and this is the unique weakness of utes, as opposed to wagons. Even the wagons derived from utes do not suffer from this weakness. And that would be that this contiguous cabin and this contiguous tray have an air gap in between them. And because to some extent, to some unknown extent, the cabin is a structural element, it increases the stiffness, which would be the resistance to bending, of this part of the structure as it rockets through space-time. Okay? And the tray the tray is the same sort of contiguous element bolted to the chassis and the stiffness of that element is increased by the tray but there's an air gap in between them which functions like a hinge in extremis because it's an area where that additional stiffness does not pertain obviously in a wagon bodied vehicle the body is bolted along the length of the chassis and this Weakness is not present because there's no gap, okay? So you've got your two uh, attachment points for the spring here, and you've got these loads that are applied. You've got all of the load of the cabin and the accessories and the people that's distributed like that. You've got the engine and gearbox pressing down basically on top of the front suspension. And then you've got all of this load that you put in the back, including the load of the camper and the load of the the, uh, tub or however your ute is uh, configured, sorry, And this load is distributed somehow like this. And then you've got tow ball download, dirty big spare tires, all cantilevered right up the back, like the fat kid from hell on the end of a seesaw. And a little tiny light kid over here somehow, and a weakness in the center. Like, guess where the seesaw's gonna break, dude? This is exactly what happens, right? Because you've got Newton's third law, okay? 100 k's an hour on the highway, all of these loads, and they are supported by up thrust in these three positions. As far as the chassis is concerned, I mean obviously the road pushes on the wheel, the wheel pushes on the axle, the axle pushes on the spring, and the spring pushes on the chassis here and here, okay? What happens though in extremis when you're on some busted ass track, there's a wash away, you haven't seen it, you're doing 80 k's an hour, you've got your trailer, you're heavily loaded, Whatever. What happens? Well, if we run a high-speed camera on that, the front end falls into the washaway. You're doing 20 metres a second, you know. So uh, an eighth of a second later, the rear wheels fall into the washaway. So everything's falling, and then shortly thereafter, the rear wheel encounters the climb out of the washaway, which could be a big fuck-off gutter, like a really big, steep, sharp hit. And then the spring's going to compress, right? So you're going to get maximum spring force here and here, and the bump stop will engage with the chassis. And I know the bump stop is protected by a bit of rubber, but it's not that flexible, and there's a lot of additional inertial load pressing up in the guts of these two arrows here. And you've got all of this other inertial load just falling under gravity. And this is the job from hell for the chassis. So you've got the impact of the wheel up like this, you've got the weight falling down like this, you've got a weak point here, there's your banana ramification. And these tracks, like... Outback tracks are very harsh and it's very difficult to see every obstacle. Invariably, you hit this and that without seeing it because you've got fixed distance myopia and fatigue is setting in and you've already driven 500 Ks and you're looking at that kangaroo or, you know, girlfriend's legs, whatever, you know, stuff happens. You miss big holes in the road, you hit them. And if everything else is wrong, like the load is wrong and the impact is wrong, then banana ramification, which is wholly undignified. Here's the second part of my hypothesis, which is that people don't think about loads. They just go, oh yeah, I can do that. And the payload's a ton, and oh, that, that can't be a ton. You know, there's 999 kilos of payload in a Triton GSR, okay? And let's say, I'm not going to do this, but let's say I were. Let's say I do the full pimp okay, and I go bull bar and winch, sidesteps, roof rack, lights, tow bar, dual battery system, I'd be flat out keeping that under 250 kilos. And let's say Triton will tow 3.1 tons, but let's say I limit myself to a two-ton trailer, which many people would describe as a small trailer. And I'd suggest that there's nothing small about a trailer that weighs as much as the vehicle in its curb weight configuration. So, there's 200 kilos on the tow ball download there. So all of a sudden, we haven't put people or their stuff in yet, and we're up to 450 out of 999. And if we just put me and Tiffany in the Triton and a bit of recovery gear for 25 kilos and a couple of jerrys of fuel and a couple of jerrys of water, put a canopy on the back because pff, it's only money, and a second spare tyre for 25 kilos, we're overloaded, dude. We're at 1,050 kilos. So you've got to decide where you're going to save some of that weight. And at the same time, you've got to say to yourself, harsh operating conditions out there do not mesh very well with loading the vehicle up as heavily as it can be loaded and then towing a heavy trailer as well. Like, come on, dude, because you can't have your cake and eat it. If you're going to use the car in harsh conditions, take it a bit easy on the load. Like, you've got to decide where the trade-offs are going to be made here because you are driving a vehicle which is a structure going down the road with a weak link engineered in just here every ute is configured in this way and if you max out all of the capabilities you are just opening the door to disaster and disaster goes hey dude thanks a lot don't mind if i do Now, before I let you go, you might remember that just a couple of videos ago, I did a report on four-wheel drive suspension lifts. Like, should you give yourself this clearance upgrade, which could also be thought of as a dynamic performance for the majority of driving downgrade, okay? Should you do it? And what are the considerations? And I basically concern myself with the physical domain. Like, what are the dynamic considerations that you have to be aware of and compensate for? And I didn't delve into the administrative requirements like legislative compliance for registration and, importantly, insurance. And I got a fascinating comment from a dude named Stu Crisp who opened the door to the insurance problem as it pertains to lifts, but also, I guess, modifications to your vehicle generally. So let's hear from Stu and his unique perspective. My daughter is a senior claims officer for the RACQ here in Briz Vegas. She deals with accident claims all day, including the complex cases. One of the difficult conversations a lot of lifted four-wheel drive owners have is when they have bent the pride and joy and the insurers tell them they aren't covered. It happens a lot and it's a conversation you really don't want. I think in general, if the lift is a factory option for that model, you're peachy. She said something about ADRs at that point and my eyes glazed over. So please, could you advise people to check they will remain insured after a lift before they put down a wad of cash? That's from Stu Crisp. And thank you very much, Stu. You raise an excellent point, mate. And I'd say that when it comes to modifications generally, one area that is often just swept under the rug conveniently by the owners of vehicles is that they they fail in terms of registration compliance, which is usually a prerequisite of maintaining your insurance cover. And they also fail in their duty of disclosure to the insurer, right? So, you know when you go online or you talk to some insurance dude on the phone, and they read out that pro forma statement, and they're not allowed to get out of reading it, they have to read it to you, and you have to say, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I understand, right? Part of that is duty of disclosure, so if you go out and you take your fine vehicle and you give it the full ARB pimp or something, then get on the phone and, even better, get on the email and tell your insurer that you've done that and ask them if you need to provide anything else to ensure that there is coverage when you're out there. Okay, like This is very important and I don't think nearly enough people do that. I, I have no information, no hard data to uh, support my hypothesis that there are plenty of vehicles driving around in that pimp state that are absolutely not covered if they have a crash, and that is kind of a problem for you and me too, because if one of them is in fault and they cra- at fault and they crash into you, then you're really going to have to go them for the house that they own or something else if you need some sort of significant compensation, or your insurer will go them. So. You know, if you're at fault and you're not insured, you are at risk of losing your house or your other salient assets. And therefore, I think, you know, Stu makes a really good point here, which would be, don't forget the final part of your modification journey, which would be to ensure that you are covered at the end of it. And obviously, as he says, the place to do that is before you start, like find out the limits of coverage of the policy. And if insurer A will not cover you because you've gone the full pimp, then shop around, dude, because I'm sure there are so many vehicles like that on the road. I'm sure there is a specialist insurer like, I don't know, Shannon's or one of those modified car specialists who could probably look after you if you're able to contextualise your usage for them. But don't leave this in the domain of she'll be right. Because maybe she won't.